0: Oh, hi, Michael. Hello, Taylor, and welcome back to Drink in the Movies.
1: Oh, thanks. I needed the intro. What are we doing? I'd just like to welcome Drinking you back to the show. Movies? Um, so this is our first kind of normal episode we've recorded this year, um, at least when we weren't in the fugue state of the holidays and binge watching things to make our top 10 list of the year. A little bit of housekeeping is an order. Um, is there anything you want to tell the folks they can expect coming uh, changes or, or a little bit more um, strategic changes on our end this year?
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple things we'll be trying out this year. One is uh, we'll be a little bit more focused on classics than I think we have been in the past 12 months, um, just out of an interest in uh, digging into directors in uh, categories of films of interest.
1: Yeah, I think that um, specifically the uh, Criterion channel might play a little bit uh, larger role than um, I'd expected. Uh, We are going to be covering The Steel Helmet and The Naked Kiss, both of which were on the Criterion channel. Uh, I signed up for a free trial and quickly um, became delighted by their selection offerings. So I think we might be doing some programming based specifically on the Criterion channel. So any listeners um, that haven't looked at it, um, there is a free 14-day trial that you could sign up for to um, watch some of the titles we'll review later in the show and maybe consider getting a year subscription to them because we will be covering a lot of stuff that they'll have um, some stuff they won't have but I, I'm excited to get back to kind of our the meat that we started the show with which was uh, classic films
0: and to be clear we are not sponsored by Criterion we just dig it
1: yes uh, their prints of films are second to none I, I really like um, some of the Janus restorations as well but I just there's nothing quite like a Criterion restoration Um, and all the other subsequent information they have attached to their files. Uh, Additionally, we'll be expanding the show a little bit to include some interviews. Um, We have some lined up with some filmmakers that we're really excited about. Uh, The first one should be coming out um, by the end of January, and then we'll be booking and recording the subsequent interviews with some um, very, very talented filmmakers. Primarily we're looking at some documentarians um, that we'll also have covered on the show in uh, their most recent projects and doc talk. Uh, We might have um, another documentary filmmaker who's of, of great notoriety who doesn't have a documentary coming out for some time. So we're really excited about that and that'll hopefully all shape together here in the next six months.
0: Lots of good stuff to come, but today is a pretty ordinary episode of Drink in the Movies. We have a couple classics to review, as well as a new release. What's our new release for today?
1: Unfortunately, our new release is called 1917, from Sam Mendes and the genius savant Roger Deakins.
0: There's a little hint about how we feel about it. Additionally, we'll be covering two films from director Sam Fuller, one fortunately. very fortunately, one being the steel helmet, as you mentioned, as well as the naked kiss. Um, Let's dive in. But first, first impressions, what are we doing first impressions of today?
1: First impressions today are a A24 double feature. We'll be looking at St. Maude, and then we'll be looking at Kelly Reichert's first cow. I think both of these are female filmmakers, so it's a nice, refreshing way to start the year.
0: Let's take a look at St. Maude first. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying.
1: You're prettier than the last one.
0: Save a soul. That's quite something. Bless Amanda's body, and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness.
1: When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, It's like he's physically in me.
0: It's how he guides me.
1: All right, Michael, that was the trailer for St. Maude from writer-director Rose Glass, who I've never heard of. What do you think?
0: I have never heard of Rose Glass either. I think this looks pretty cool. Um, A24 is also just really good at making catchy commercials that sometimes it feels like a little hard to tell what like the real meat or tone of it is. Sometimes I feel like I'm just reacting to the trailer itself and the yes. marketing of it. It's pretty catchy marketing. It's probably going to get me in the door, Um, and I think I like most of what I see, Um, but uh, I don't know that I could even describe the tone very well, because I feel like I'm mostly just feeling the marketing effort here, Um, but I don't know. I'm still pumped. What about you?
1: I would agree. I think for me, um, I, I picked up on the tone a little bit more. It definitely feels like a psychological thriller in the religious genre, Um, or the, you know, a religion-based psychological thriller where I'm not too sure what exactly the relationship is between Maude and this, um, cancer patient. I assume, uh, this blonde woman, or the bald woman who we start the trailer with, her caring for, and by the end of the trailer, she's mocking her, um, and reality seems to be distorted, um, so I'm, I'm definitely interested. I really liked some of the cinematography we saw in the middle there during the, the uh, outside um, or in the outside at night on the street. That, that looked a little uh, slick to me, kind of a, a softy vibe of the city, which is always cool. Um, I'm definitely up for it and excited that Spring has a release that promising.
0: Absolutely. Comes out on March 27th. Looks like it is a directorial debut. Feature length at least. So. Oh, wow. Cool stuff.
1: Very cool. Okay, so we've already got an early frontrunner for directorial debut of the year. We'll see what happens. On to First Cow.
0: It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for poor men to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. same a place for cows. No, well, it's no place for white men either. I sense opportunity here. All right, we just watched the trailer for Kelly Reichert's first cow. What is your first impression?
1: My first impression is joy and excitement. Um, Kelly Reichert has one of the strongest voices for North American storytelling um, that I can think of. She particularly lives in the... um, the Wild West era, which I can't really give a range of dates to, but I can say, since English ships landed here to when we begin to began to use metal devices to transport ourselves, um, that range of time is really where she exists with with um, the loudest and most impressive voice among filmmakers, and this is right in that little area. Um, it's in nature. It's got great character actors supporting it and i'm completely long for the ride and don't quite know what to expect other than to leave expectations at the door and walk in open-minded i
0: think i agree with you pretty much on all fronts uh i love kelly reichert i expect her to be coming up when we do our favorites of the decade next week um i agree i think she has a really interesting perspective on American history at first glance the movies are kind of small but all of them really just kind of stick with me in unexpected ways and I think she has a really painterly eye for composition um, a real kind of empathy for her characters and their struggles Um, and this looks like um, it is very characteristic of all those things I really like about her work so I am very pumped.
1: Agreed. I think that um, we'll be covering this film and possibly some of her early films whenever First Cow does come out. On to 1917. We need to keep moving! Come on!
0: We can't possibly make it that way, man! You buddy insane! god's
1: name did you have to choose me all right let me give you my one take take here nope we're done
0: we ready to move to, on are we are gonna try to do this with no <laughs> edits
1: i don't think so
0: come on i'm I trying to save so. you some of the editing work for, in case listeners don't know taylor <laughs> is very graciously the editor of our podcast i can't interest you in letting this be a, an edit free episode
1: it's not going to happen. Um, now, if we could do, if we could limit it to four stitches, like uh, 1917 mm-hmm. itself, that would be quite impressive, but I, I really suspect not.
0: So we're pro-editing, that's what okay. it sounds like.
1: I'm definitely pro-editing, because if I wasn't, then I would probably commit suicide with our show. So, yeah, I'm certainly pro-editing.
0: <laughs> Me too, if only <laughs> listeners knew how much of what I say is cut out of this show.
1: Um, I don't think they need to know.
0: No, they don't. Now they do. <laughs> Sounds like you didn't like it so much. 1917. I, directed I by Sam Mendes. I liked it
1: a little bit less than you, I suspect. I think we both gave it a three. I'm middle of the road on my three. Like, it's barely a 76, not a 74. I could easily bump it down to two and a half and feel like that's not harsh enough. I felt nothing for this film besides respect for the physical prowess used by every person to make it. Um, but as far as storytelling goes, I have nothing but the, the meanest, harshest criticisms for it.
0: Coming out of the gates hot. I'm with you. Uh, I did not care for this film at all, really. It's kind of two thumbs down for me. Um, I think it's technically accomplished, right? I don't know that anyone is going to disagree about that. For me, the technical proficiency was counterproductive in a very meaningful way to uh, what this story is. Agreed. Um, So, anyone who is not familiar with 1917 is shot to look as if it were... um, in a uh, continuous take for mm-hmm. the entire length of the film. Um, to me, it felt completely detached from the perspective of the characters. It calls attention to um, detail and, and movement in a way that um, excludes me from the picture and really deprives it of spontaneity and possibility. All I can concentrate on is how predetermined this all feels, which sometimes feels very... Kind of icky when it's um, drawing attention to, you know, the bodies that these two British soldiers are um, constantly um, coming in contact with. The dead bodies. Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, you know, all I can really think about is the crew placing this body part and that um, structure here the whole way through. Um, I was not uh, involved in this story. Um, I would not recommend it. But um, it is nominated for Best Picture. So, And Best Director? I believe that's correct.
1: Um, one th- major criticism that I have. Um, that might not hold up. I haven't done any math. And I never plan to rewatch this film to be honest. Is I... Agree that it seems like it's one take, but if you take one moment to think about where they start and where they end, it makes no sense in one quote-unquote take for me to start on one side of a battlefield and end up on another totally different side after I've gone through a city. Like, I know that it's quote-unquote in one take and that we're seeing him every step of the way, but the distances just don't equal the time that we're spending with him. I know how fast that truck could go while he was in it, while it was loaded down with all those people. There's no... It just makes no sense for them to have gotten that far. Does it?
0: Uh, it seems very likely that some things maybe just don't compute.
1: Yeah, and, and um... As far as a, a war film, um... That is one of my favorite genres of film. I know that, um... The real genre, I guess, is called Sword and Sandal, but my favorite films growing up were Sword and Sandal war films like Troy and Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven. I also really like Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, those types of things. I care less about the Jarhead side of stuff, but I, st- I still respect that side of filmmaking. Um, they sacrificed everything that is great about the companionship war film to make this film, they they didn't have anything to me that felt harrowing because the harrowing scene that happens at the very end, I've already seen about 180,000 times before a movie started in the movie theater this last year. Um, the final sequence is the most seen sequence of the film in the trailers, which is a, a terrible decision. Blade Runner 2049, hot take, is one of my favorite films of the decade. Cinematography by Roger Deakins. I think it has some of the best compositions I've ever seen in my whole life. When I think about cinematography, I think about certain scenes from that movie to describe what it can do. There's not one scene from this movie that I say that about.
0: I paused to think about if there was anything really positive I had to say about this movie. Um, uh, I don't know that I have a whole lot. Um... I, yeah, I think I think the cinematography is impressive. I just kept thinking about um, I think it was Sydney Lumet who said, or Sydney Lumet who said, you know, don't let the difficulty involved in getting a shot let you think that shot is any good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is sort of the you know perfect example of that. Um, and. I think what this movie has to say about the horror of war is um, not something that the form is really helping to demonstrate, particularly in the climax where the British soldier we're left with is, you know, charging across a field in the shot. Anyone who has seen the trailer will be familiar with um, the, the kind of um, triumphant, Uh, note of it I think is just really sort of um, clashing with the idea that any of this is so awful to to be involved with Um, yeah I don't know I think the movie we're going to talk about later in this episode The Steel Helmet and how that movie um, deals with how truly terrible and grueling war is is something that this movie um, it's really kind of falsely interested in.
1: yeah, um, and, and Steel Helmet does like nine other things too, which are fascinating. Not to mention how Sam Fuller incorporates children into his films, which is a separate conversation that I'm very excited to have. Sam Mendez is a very competent director. Roger Deakins is perhaps the best cinematographer still alive. Um, I, I might have some personal preference for some other folks, but he's definitely up there for me. I I do not see what everyone else is seeing. Um, this is kind of like Green Book to me, where I I understand that there is some impressive stuff happening, either in front of the lens or behind it, but there's no way that it's my best picture um, of the year, and it's not even in the conversation for me. Um, so that take that for what you will. I, I have heard some folks... Um, kind of compare this to um, not being a war movie so much as, like, a journey movie, um, and maybe I can see the merit for that uh, as a journey, but the, the screenplay beats of seeing a baby in a drawer of speaking to a woman and giving her the food that you just so happen to stumble across of conveniently dying from an airplane after you get the milk that the baby needs. Uh, narratively, it it is one of the weakest plot points um, stitched together that I, that I've seen all year. I just, I, I wish I had something positive to say.
0: But. Yeah. I am just kind of, shocked um that people have responded to the story in the way that they have direction aside because of just how contrived some of it feels to me um just to like name some specifics since we've mostly been kind of big picture so far when they're um in this covered trench and one of the soldiers has just been buried because of a booby trap and on their Way running out of this tunnel tunnel, uh, they have to jump a hole of some kind, right? Um, a-, a mine trench, right? Um, you know, it really is just so cliche and lazy. For you know, a critic to say it feels like an amusement park ride, but that is exactly what it felt like to me. It just felt like an Indiana Jones ride, right? Mm-hmm. Where. You're, you're, you're not, I did not feel like I was in this scene. I definitely felt like I was in my cart swiveling and the camera is telling me where to look because one animatronic character is going to be jumping over a hole here and I need to be sure to catch that. Um, And it just feels so without spontaneity. I I just think that that makes it kind of boring for me Mm -hmm. when I, when I feel like there's really no sense of chance.
1: Which Um, is weird because it is supposed to feel like a one-take, and I know that I'm on the record as not liking Long Day's Journey into Night, but the thing that is so cool about its one-take shot is that there there are absolutely mistakes in that one-take, and they had to go with the improvisations as they were, and they had to adjust on the fly, and I don't know what those are, but I know they're there. There's no way they're not there. And I get the impression from this film that there's almost none of those. And if there are any, they're boring and not artistic, or they they don't add more character to the film. Um, they're not um, beauty marks. They're not even blemishes. They're things I don't notice because it's so overproduced.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the long take in Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I do think is keeps coming up in this conversation since it is like do you want big other long take like of the year um yeah has things that just feel like they could have gone so differently right like a a trick pool shot mm-hmm. or the the horse that kind of panics when someone approaches it like it just feels like at any moment this might veer off into a different direction whereas in 1917 where we see you know, a dogfight between some a couple planes and one starts coming toward them. It just feels so predetermined. I just know exactly w- where that plane is going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then shortly thereafter, when we lose one of our characters and the camera is kind of swirling around him, that just feels so in conflict with what that scene means. Um, just, just kind of icky for me. I don't, I don't like it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to talk to more people about it and see the extent to which the appreciation is first and foremost for the technical brio versus the, the narrative, which I feel like is so kind of um, Bond style. James Bond, you know, here's your objective. Uh, yeah. Go complete it. But it doesn't have any of the
1: charm of Bond.
0: Oh yeah, I'm not, not just I Bond, say it's a good but the Bond film. Movie.
1: Yeah, it, there's. Well, let me ask you a, a really hard question. This is a hard-hitting question that we normally ask on the show. What's your favorite scene,
0: Michael? That is a tough question. You're right. There isn't much that I
1: really. There's that Light. great nighttime scene where the the city's on fire and the fire's very clearly shitty CGI fire that I totally know. destroyed anything that I had going for me in that scene.
0: Is that your least favorite? Uh,
1: it's runner-up for about 90 other shots that I don't care for.
0: What would my favorite... I really... I don't think I have one. I do not think I I have a favorite scene. I do have one. Okay.
1: It's um, when they spend a little bit of time on Kenneth Branagh talking into the camera. And it's not because it's well shot. It's just because it's nice to spend time with like a really, really, really competent actor delivering lines almost perfectly. Uh, It was just like a refreshing glass of of, uh, fresh milk. In the middle of a film that I have nothing other good
0: things to say
1: about.
0: Do we leave it at that? Nineteen Seventeen, directed by Sam Mendes.
1: Let's leave it at that and um, mutter a a a wish that it does not win Best Picture. We'll be right back after this sponsorship break. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Podcorn.
0: Podcorn takes the pain out of finding and sponsoring on-demand audio shows. They make it easy for brands to connect to the right podcasters to create authentic messages that resonate and engage listeners across audio platforms.
1: With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasts of all size can browse and choose Sponsorship opportunities right on the platform. Set their own rates and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn is there to support you every step of the way. Michael hadn't seen Podcorn before and I showed him in about three minutes how to log in and how to review the entire site.
0: That's right, today was my first time using it, and it was indeed ridiculously easy to use.
1: Click the link in our show note to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. The Naked Kiss from Samuel Fuller. The Naked Kiss. A motion picture not for the squeamish, but powerful entertainment for those who enjoy reality in the raw. When I came to this town, I was a prostitute. next morning I quit. We pivoted to this title at the last second last week, and this is my favorite film of the the episode. Um, where are you at on The Naked Kiss, Michael?
0: Oh, I really like this film. Uh, in case folks are wondering why we went with Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss this week, our next title will be The Steel Helmet. No, no, that's not why. We went with it because his first name is Sam, and 1917
1: is directed by Sam... Mendez. whoa
0: i had not thought about that connection
1: i just came up with it how do you like that <laughs>
0: uh but yeah i liked the naked kiss a great deal this is a 1964 uh film uh it is uh a neo-noir uh with some flashes reversal of, mm-hmm, with some flashes of red hot melodrama which i very much liked um it's set in a small uh a small-town America mm-hmm. suburb. Um, it is about a prostitute named Kelly. Just Kelly. I don't think we ever get a last name. We do not. Who arrives by bus and very promptly sleeps with a no. police officer. She's a prompting.
1: saleswoman, and she sells him angel foam. It just so happens that angel foam also means that she's a prostitute who slept with this officer. Very discreet. <laughs>
0: She sleeps with the police officer, wakes up the following morning, and decides to ditch her trade. Tries to go Well, she goes to
1: the other side of the river, where he recommends, and she's actually looking for the uh, woman, Candy, that she was recommended to go find when she stumbles upon the uh, open room by the seamstress. Mm. And then she goes in there to rent the room, and... um, she gets the the four-post bed with its four angels and um, starts her life anew. It, I, I don't think it was as premeditated as you just made it sound. I, I got the sense that it was a little bit more off the cuff. D- did you feel differently?
0: I did. I think that shot of her looking at herself in the mirror was this moment of uh, reflection, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, that too. That too. But I, I definitely felt it come together um, in that seamstress's home, I, I guess. That's where like, I felt the yeah. empathetic transference. Like, I definitely felt like the character had a realization, but I didn't get the sense that the world um, could allow her change until she entered that area.
0: Yeah, I think I'm good with that. Um, yeah, there. to me, there are a couple beats. She, yeah. she wakes up, she, she realizes she doesn't want to wake up in places like this anymore, and then she um, is fortunate enough to um, find somewhere else to go, uh, mm-hmm. which is a um, seamstress who is just lovely. Yes. Um, her house and yeah, sets up shop there. And uh, I, yeah, I thought this movie was great. It was um, so different from what I was expecting. Uh, mm-hmm. I did watch the steel helmet first. Me too. Um, so this was a, a a pivot in certain ways that I was not expecting. Um, yeah, I like the seediness of it, um, just the boldness of it. It's very outre and proud of it. I think it's very scathing and intent on kind of exposing some of these, um, hypocrisies of American suburbia. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I am very positive on it. What about you?
1: I agree. Um, during this film, I, I kind of thought, Around a few pillars. Um, first and foremost is Sam F- Samuel Fuller to me um, as a storyteller um, is operating in the same space that I think of Lenny Bruce having operated, um, addressing the truth that is uncomfortable constantly um, without any sense of backing down, um, and so sharp but also so eloquent and beautiful in it. I also thought of George Carlin who picked up honey Bruce's um, you know, flag and and waved it on into, you know, the coming decades. And then I thought surprisingly, and maybe you'll push back on this, a lot about Paul Schrader. And Samuel Fuller's storytelling to me seems very um in line with Paul Schrader's storytelling. He creates these abrasive main characters who go on to illustrate uncomfortable truths about the world that um, the director or screenwriter, in Paul Schrader's case, might have some misgivings about and is working out internally. And I, I just see them as operating in very similar storytelling timelines.
0: I think I could see that. I probably get that more from the steel helmet for sure than the naked kiss, right? Where so much of the action, as we'll talk about, plays out in this house of worship, which I think yeah. just gives everything this kind of spiritual feel. I, I can and see that. I think
1: the one that I'd point to with with this film would be Hardcore, which is something you haven't yet yeah. seen. I know Hardcore does have a male main character, but it's the point of the CD underbelly of LA, and the point of the CD underbelly of every town in America and what a traveling saleswoman means um, and what, you know, something as innocent as Angel Foam Champagne being bought means Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know these rich people that we trust are actually you know pedophiles, raping children there's just uh, to me there's there's a great um, relationship there between hardcore and, and this film
0: yeah, um yeah, I think I could see it. To me, you know, st- I haven't seen enough Paul Schrader to really say one way or the other, right? I've seen Mishima, First Reformed. Yeah, and i point um, towards
1: those two and the steel helmet pretty quickly.
0: To me, they're both just like so polished and, you know, in their transcendental style, which is very different to me than the sort of um, scruffy kind of genre um, approach of Fuller. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think I I think I see the, the thematic connections. Yeah.
1: And I you know, I think it would be less scruffy if Fuller told stories now. I think because he was mm-hmm. constrained by that studio system, and what I can imagine is not a big budget, um mm-hmm. gosh, what he does is really impressive to me.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I thought a lot about blue velvet. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, how that's all about sort of exposing this seedy underbelly of suburbia. And that's um what Fuller's doing here, he's almost just kind of, you know, showing it as right there on the surface, in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, You know, you think of that first shot, Blue Velvet, where you're watching these, like, ridiculously artificial um, stagings of a guy watering his lawn and the fireman on the fire truck waving at you, and there are scenes here that feel highly ironic to me in a similar way in showing um, this sort of um, Pleasantville-ish suburban setting with some... Um, you know, really, uh, gross scenes, gross things right there, um, beneath the surface, and, um, you know, what is criticized as deviant and what kind of goes unseen. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also is just a great noir, right? It just looks good with all the light and shadow you could want. Um, great dialogue. There's that line about, uh, She's talking to the guy who she's hoping to settle down with, mm-hmm. and he says something about, uh, you know, her interest in poetry. Mm-hmm. She says, you know, or he says, this just, I-, I wish I could remember the line word for word, but it's something about poetry in the age of missiles. Yes. Uh, that's a great line. That's poetry.
1: Yes. Um, boy, with this film, there's a, a lot of things, but I, I think the most impressive is the original song. Um, that has all the children singing on it as well as our main actress who I looked up about four times during the film and I still forget her name right now Um, but she's extremely talented and I believe actually began her career as a singer before she became an actress and she still has a a career she's still alive but definitely slowing down
0: yeah actress's name is Constance Towers
1: and I was thinking, it's not Constance Wu, it's Constance... Is it even Constance?
0: <laughs> yeah, she's good. Uh, she has uh, a couple of scenes where she uh, goes to town on different people. Right? Uh-huh. In the opening scene where she's beating the crap out of some guy who we kind of learn later uh, who exactly he is. She Her pimp? I didn't know. Did you know that right away? That wasn't exactly clear to me.
1: I, as soon as he said, in the jail... I'm her. Bi- I was her business manager. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that when I knew it was clear. Her yeah, I wasn't. sure I, if I, I had was no idea until that was said.
0: Okay, me neither. I I wasn't sure if maybe we were supposed to have picked up on that somehow. It felt like a reveal to me.
1: Yeah. No, it definitely felt like a reveal. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree.
0: Uh, yeah, and um, I, I like the music. I think you know there are some switches from that real, uh, hot fiery jazz to the orchestral that uh really just seems to um, suggest the two different sides of this place, right? The Mm -hmm. deviance and then that sort of facade of suburban bliss. Um, Yeah, It's just, it's just, that's just kind of fun. And at the same time, it's all very pulpy, very pulpy.
1: But somehow the facade of, of suburban bliss doesn't feel completely fake. There's one scene where, and it's, I think the final happy scene that we ever get to see where she's taking her dress out of the seamstress's house, and the seamstress is um, saying farewell to her, and she's going up on the porch, and then she's walking on the sidewalk past these uh, girls playing jump rope, and then a little boy riding a tricycle, and it's kind of a long take shot, that's really impressive, but it felt real, it in a way that not like this is permanent, but like a, this is one of those beautiful singular moments of bliss in your life that you can just kind of remember how how happy that moment was. Mm. And this film has one of those. And to me, it didn't ring entirely empty. It I believe that she was that happy as I was witnessing her in that moment before everything went to hell.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I think this is... Um for as ironic as a lot of it feels i think it is often sincere when it's looking at the children mm-hmm. like in the sequence where they sing this song together when they're recording it and we get these close ups of each kid one after the next yeah um that only makes it like really sting and that much more repulsive when you discover what this wealthy guy is is doing um and it's revealed that he's a pedophile um it it, it does seem to um express real concern for these kids, obviously. Yeah. That is not the subject of its derision or contempt at all. Um, it's definitely more geared towards the adults. <laughs> and these are the unsuspecting victims in, in a very real way. Yeah, but
1: the the kids in in this film are the ones that have the harshest realities, the ones that are the most honest, and the ones that are the most courageous, I would say. Yeah. Um, that's not dismissing Kelly, but I other than Kelly, very few characters showed courage. um There was one woman who was given a thousand dollars by Kelly to not have an abortion. um and that that woman did show courage, but she had very brief screen time. Most mm-hmm. of the adults in this film did not have courage, whereas most of the children um because of the nature of the children in this film did have courage, and I think that we'll see that repeating theme come up again in Steel Helmet, and I think I, I'd be very interested to see the rest of his entire filmography, because he um, he definitely says something that I agree with about the nature of of youth, and it, it's bounty for um, life.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely something about the innocence of youth.
1: But um, also it's strength, and it's yeah. compassion and forgiveness. There, There's something very um, stirring to me about his depiction there.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, Additional thoughts? Should we move on? Favorite scene before we move on? I really like the opening. I think in a way it feels similar to the opening to Steel Helmet mm-hmm. to me, that we're just suddenly kind of thrown into this uncomfortable situation and we're going to figure out who it is that we're watching as we go. Um and I, I love the jazz in that scene that that's that's so uh you know fiery and hot i like it um I'll, I'll go with that what about you
1: um mine is less stylized um on the back end and more just about letting constance do an impressive thing with a great child performer it's when the the main little boy with the uh, defined buck teeth um gets his new legs and she um kind of plays a, a stern maternal figure who makes him walk on them and um touches toes. The way that her the way that Sam gives a close-up on her face, um and how it just dynamically shifts during that whole process was just great. It was hitchcocky and it it was everything that a close-up should be. And it was masterful and something that didn't have any weight, but has all of the weight of the world because it is a little kid learning how to live um, a normal life. And that this is the figure who can teach him that is, um, you know, it's special. It was just a special scene. I really liked it.
0: Yeah, I-, I think it's really interesting to to see her in those hospital scenes where I was almost expecting if this had been a more um you know if this maybe had been a studio film in some world we would maybe see more kind of maternal instincts come out you get Mm -hmm. that a bit but she's also kind of tough like yes very tough tough she's very tough um and it's not the you know sort of um goddess like mother figure that i think um cinema often uh can turn you know can often show that a woman has become in, yes. in some sort of redemption arc. Um he lets her remain tough even though she wants to go straight and maybe chase this american dream in some way. She's going to do it but she's going to remain who she is. Which mm-hmm. is great. I like that a lot.
1: And everybody was the benefit of it in that town um on to the steel helmet. you ballerina smokes cigars. I got a box in my pack. Oh yeah. What kind? I don't know. I don't smoke. I just found him. I'll see as far as the temple for the stogies. Know where it is? Let's go. The steel helmet. A man is handcuffed on a hill, peeking over it. His, um bullet hole, steel helmet just peeking above that, that ridge. This is how the film opens up. This is a great film. What do you think about this film, Michael?
0: I really liked this film. Uh, I think this had popped up on your radar after Martin Scorsese's op-ed in the New York Times about the state of cinema, more or less. Correct. Um, this was one of a handful of titles that he expressed a great deal of affection for Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have a great deal of affection for it as well I thought this was great Uh, it's tough and gritty it's a green War movie Um, that's a lot to say it certainly does Um, it's low budget I don't I think it's it feels very real to me it's not always like super realistic I think I no you certainly
1: are on movie
0: lots yeah but um, it is quite unblinking in it's um, eye towards the, you know, tough realities of war. Um, I think it has a great cast, um, led by Gene Evans, who plays Sergeant Zach, the uh-huh. soldier you described in the opening scene. Um
1: A surly individual who is also a veteran of World War II and
0: stormed the beaches on D-Day. That's right. It's efficient. It's only 85 minutes long. I think it's very economically directed. Um realistic, but I like that it has some style, too, especially once we get to the Buddhist temple where Mm -hmm. most of this movie is set. Um, The soldier you described um, goes on to join up with this kind of motley crew of other U.S. soldiers all sort of weary on their way towards a Buddhist temple where they're going to be setting up uh, a post of some Mm -hmm. kind. Um, I... Really liked it. What about you, overall?
1: I also... I adore it. I agree with everything you said, but I would add that there's a lot more going on under the surface. There's a conversation about racism in America. There's a conversation about religion in America. There's a conversation about um, PTSD and the the effects of, of trauma in a war situation. Um... And paternalism and the, the beauty of children, there's, there's a lot of different hats being juggled or themes and, and points, and this is one of those things that made me think not only of Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, but also of First Reformed, um, particularly the repeating shot of the Buddha. Um, I don't quite know what to do other than to think about stop. Because the hand is being held up, and we keep going to to that um, the the idea of stop, and then w- what stop what um, fighting stop going to war on foreign soil stop um, needless bloodshed stop what it, right because the Korean War isn't necessarily needless bloodshed it it did liberate. A people um, and now you know what North Korea is so is the alternate reality of not doing that better There's a lot of stuff in this film and I just I don't know how to unpack it other than great appreciation and I loved it.
0: Yeah I agree and I, I like that it really kind of leaves that to us to contemplate most of the time when we're watching these soldiers in the temple they're um, you know kind of going about their business but then the camera will just stop to look at that gigantic Buddha that's in the middle of it. Also these kind of smaller statues that are in the different rooms they go in. Um and, you know, I they explicitly talk about race. I don't remember they might explicitly talk about um, you know, spirituality in some way or another. But it definitely feels like that's um, um the, the prayer to...
1: is kind of under the surface because the little boy is writing the prayers. And mm-hmm. then at one point, um, the our our main character his prayer is the name that he calls the boy on a pendant
0: Mm, yeah yeah to me it definitely just felt like in war nothing is sacred Uh anything is fair game anywhere anytime um a life can be taken you know just with the snap of the fingers um you know no matter whether you're um in the battlefield or in a house of worship yeah um it just makes it seem all that more kind of um unthinkable um but yeah I, I like the the cast to um the actor who uh plays our lead uh sergeant gene evans uh mm-hmm. you know is just so gruff and hardened and i think part of this is about um you know the how unfeeling these soldiers are left by war Yeah, i mean um, he's wounded by a good bullet the entire
1: time and yeah. it's never addressed
0: yeah, he has a a limp for yeah,
1: and and the the, the wound is bleeding and tied the entire film.
0: He's a tough dude, yeah. um, but it doesn't feel to me like it is in any way romanticizing the machismo, you know, of this crew. It's whatsoever. the opposite of yeah. that. Um, yeah, and that this guy does, you know, somewhat open up to this young South Korean boy who he journeys with through most of the film um uh who he ultimately loses i think it just you know goes to show um why he in the first place is so hardened and how um mm-hmm. what you risk when you do open up in war yeah. um and how just not an option that is if you want to stay sane if you can stay sane in war which i don't think you can
1: yeah and i think there's something more specific undergirding
0: that to me it's it's first enforced just a war movie about the the horror of war and how hardened it leaves people and mm-hmm. how um how closed off they become and how it's not romantic it's not glorious it's it's awful um it's brutal
1: yeah it's
0: it's gory it's
1: um at times kind of funny because of the um errors that are captured by the camera during a particular night shootout where they are killing some um koreans who are in the trees shooting them um we hear a bunch of gunfire and one of our characters is actually not even pulling his trigger but his gun is proceeding to kill someone who's in a tree there there's a lot um happening
0: and beyond our lead i think i think the cast is interesting how he distinguishes them from each other without you know just uh doling out traits to to differentiate them Mm -hmm. um and you know i think it's it's the the filmmaking and the kind of honesty of it surviving and taking care of
1: this group of men and and helping this um young boy who's gone bald um fix his baldness by rubbing dirt on his head (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah that was interesting to me because when we first see that kid bald it's during the gunfight in the jungle like we see him hit Mm -hmm. the deck and his helmet falls off yes yeah that's right and then it's like a scene later when the gunfight has ended that uh zach knocks his helmet off i think or takes his helmet off and he realizes he's bald so we've already discovered that Mm -hmm. you know it's just like the more conventional approach would be that like we learn when Zach learns, since we're kind of following him, which, to me, the language there is just kind of um, reiterating that we're kind of observing Zach. We're not necessarily in his shoes. Um, yeah, we're, yeah. We're now watching him kind of discover things. Um, there's some interesting choices there. Like, uh, another one that was kind of interesting to me was when they discover the body of another American soldier just, like, along the road. hmm And, and he, he says not to he says don't worry about it it's just a dead body a dead body doesn't mean anything and then you cut to the soldier who he's talking to and it's up the back of his head rather than his face like you would just expect the reaction shot of him being sort of appalled or something like that um i I don't even know what to make of it it's just an interesting shot to me where um, we, we kind of know what that reaction looks like. It sort of leaves that to our imagination.
1: but it it also I think is a little bit of a foreshadowing to this is just another dead soldier
0: that, that he's talking face to, So another, the face doesn't matter that yeah in some ways yeah these these in the end are, are faceless soldiers who, who who die for for bad reasons. And what happens is the
1: the um, a, a soldier's task to go down there and get the dog tags from the body. And it's a booby trap, dead body, and that person is exploded with um, lots of detail on the camera, um, a, a amount that I had not expected to see in a in a film at this era.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and it's just a efficient movie. It's yeah, I think it just moves right along. I think I think the action's pretty well staged, even though if it's not all pretty. If, even if it's not all convincing, I think it is um, kind of in an exciting in a way that doesn't, you know, um, champion it in any way, obviously.
1: No, and, um, and it's internally logical, it, even though things don't quite look real, it, it all fits within its own scope. Um, So you you can kind of just suspend disbelief and go for the ride.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things Fuller said was that the only way to make a real anti war movie would be if you. During the screening of the movie, movie occasionally shot some bullets out into the auditorium, which I think there's something to. But I think he comes pretty darn close to making an anti-war movie here without, um, making it too exhilarating.
1: Yeah, I think he makes a pro-human film, mm-hmm. and and other caveats. I, I would have to spend a lot of time thinking about.
0: Yeah. Uh, favorite team.
1: Favorite scene, boy. My favorite scene in this film is probably when the little boy goes to write um, a new prayer um, inside of the the temple. Um, it's not for any particular reason other than the earnestness of the shot and the belief in the boy of um the goodness of these men of Zach and of um you know him it's just it's a it's a touching scene that um you know it's not as, as cool as the opening shot but it's beautiful how about you
0: I do like that kid uh I like the scene during the final uh fight when uh Zach has that kind of shell shocked reaction. Um, and he's, he sees, I think he was on the ground and he slowly stands up and is, you know, um, completely in, an, in a daze. <laughs> um, and it's partly extra textual because I had heard that that was partly, um, and, uh, the inspiration for shots in Raging Bull where it's not De Niro's character, but the opposite boxer who, you know, you know has just suffered a blow and is standing up in a complete daze with like the steam of the heat of the ring kind of rising up around him and now i can't get those images out of my head so that was a good shot
1: that is a great scene um i really liked this movie i loved naked kiss um which one's your favorite out of these fuller films
0: probably the naked kiss what about you same good pick Go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.